0: Hugh Syme, a world renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hey, Andy, how are you today? Good. And Hugh Syme, how's it going, Hugh? It's going well, thank you, Andrew. Good. Today we're joined by Steve Hackett. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee Steve Hackett is renowned as an immensely talented and innovative rock musician. He was lead guitarist with Genesis as part of their classic lineup with Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, Tony Banks, and Mike Rutherford um, from 1971 to 1977. Steve's extraordinary versatility in both his electric guitar playing and his composing involves influences from many genres, including jazz, world music, blues, and more. He's equally adept in his classical albums that include renditions and pieces of the likes of Bach and others. His own acoustic guitar compositions have gained the admiration of many, and his ambitious guitar orchestra albums, such as A Midsummer Night's Dream, recorded with the Royal Philharmonic, have done the same. After Genesis, Steve embarked on his solo career, which he's continued to release tons of music, and we're going to delve into some of that. His solo career went from strength to strength, and by the mid-'80s, not only saw the hit single Cell 151, but also Steve joined up with Steve Howe from Yes fame to form the supergroup GTR. After GTR, Steve went on to work with others, including Paul Carrick, Bonnie Tyler, Chris Squire, John Wetton of Asia, Brian May, and more. He has influenced so many guitar players, including some of the biggest names like Eddie Van Halen, Alex Lyson, and others. His solo albums and projects have always possessed a high level of sophistication. Along with an ever-present, powerful dynamic, Steve's live electric gigs take his fans on an extraordinary journey drawn from a rich musical heritage. Perennial Genesis favorites sit alongside his solo classics, while more recent solo materials also included – demonstrating that Steve is an artist still at the very top of his game who's always looking and moving forward. Welcome, Steve Hackett.
1: Hey there.
2: Hey, Steve. Man, it's a great honor and a pleasure to talk about your career today.
1: Well, pleasure is all mine to talk to you. Well, you know, the quality of your
2: output is, of course, amazing, and so the quantity as well. Um, I went to your webpage yesterday. I counted, I think, 25 solo albums you know the nine genesis albums over a dozen other projects as well so man incredible
3: i i just spent the morning listening to night siren and did you okay it is such a great cross-section of everything you do from gorgeous acoustic exposed acoustic to to flamenco and and amazing orchestration i want to ask you about that um just in terms of arrangement and and composition you are you're stunning absolutely stunning and i i was a huge fan of yours Back in the seventies, when I was listening to Spectral Mornings, and I couldn't listen to Virgin and the Gypsy enough. It was just such a
1: a masterpiece at the time. I'm glad you like that. I, I had a great time doing that album, but um, all the, all the things that I've been uh, lucky enough to do over the years, um, they've really been their own re- reward. Really, I think that's the thing about music is is it's been um, it's been a lifelong friend from when I was two years old trying to play harmonica like my dad you know um it's it's been a great journey and 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 um every day I, i'm i'm lucky enough to to come up with new ideas it might be a new riff it might be just a plan of of something but despite my best efforts to halt it music just keeps rattling through my brain in the middle of the night first thing in the morning in my dreams it just won't stop and that's, uh, that's fine. I mean, I've got to remember not to not to rehearse in my brain at three in the morning. That's the <laughs> that's the only thing. That's a hard thing to stop, man. You know, wh- it's a hard it? thing to stop, isn't it? Are you got sort of paradiddle fever going on in the oh, middle?
2: Oh yeah, well, and songwriting stuff too. So it, it yeah? yeah if that just means you're engulfed in in music and you know that's your life.
1: Um, I guess that's the thing about the muse. Whenever whenever it he she um, alights um you have you to get grab it, down it some way you've got to write it down or you've got to record it into something and yeah. you've got to honor it somehow certainly certainly from
3: listening to your music over the years so i have to i have to guess that your muse come from somewhere like the lake district or lindisfarne or <laughs>
1: well um I'm, I'm i'm english but you know the first first tune I, I ever got to play as a kid on the harmonica um Yellow Rosa, Texas was one of them. So it wasn't all, wasn't all homegrown, you see? Oh, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, um, that's not, that's cool. Yeah.
1: Yeah. How about that? You know, and yeah. um, I guess that would be, would that be a Nashville shuffle? The rhythm uh, of that? It, it yeah. would be, sure. Oh, yep. okay. Yeah. Yellow Rosa, Texas. Scotland, the brave. The so they are all place names, the, the, these things. Um, I think God Save the Queen. Um but they're all kind of national anthems in their own their own way. These these things. The and those of the first things that you learned. Yeah, that's the awesome. First
2: you yeah. Well, one thing that really surprised me is is diving into your history that uh, you know you. St- I think I read that you were playing guitar at twelve and you'd already developed an interest in classical and opera, and but you never had any formal training. Now no. I find that that's astonishing to me with uh, all the odd meter stuff that you've done over the years and your your chops and your chord voicings. I mean, can you tell us who your influences as as a guitarist were when you started and how you progressed up to playing in your first band?
1: Well, I think um, the first electric guitar I was aware of in England, um, I don't know if you're aware of of, of, of the band called The Shadows, Oh, oh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. The Shadows were Cliff Richard's backing band. Sure. Uh, Cliff was the nearest thing to Elvis that we really had at that time. He had the hair, the face, the looks, all of that uh, great voice. Yeah. and um, But his backing band uh, were no slouches either, and they were having hits under their own name and with him, so they dominated the British charts. Um, so that was the early influence. Uh, Hank Marvin was the guitarist. Yeah. And um, I, I've met him a few times over the years, ever since. And um, he's an immensely nice, very modest guy. I, I, I always admire modesty in, in the accomplished, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yes. But I guess music is very important to all all four of us here, I, I'm, I'm guessing. No question. Indeed. Yeah. Speaking of harp, when I was listening to your album this morning,
3: Anything But Love, when the harp came in, I thought, don't tell me this guy's good at that, too.
1: <laughs> really? Well, that was my uh, original thing. Harmonica was my original thing, and, and I um, um, became interested in blues harp. Um, I love love the sound of, of um,
3: blues harp. I suspect Mark felt them for a minute, and then I, I I double-checked, and sure enough, it's you. But you also have a background as a, a floatist, don't you? Uh, no, that's my brother.
1: We we both bought a flute together, but he was the one who took off with it. Um, I see. Okay, it was my friend Ian MacDonald, who basically ah. invented King Crimson and wrote, sure, famous in the court of the Crimson King tune. Yeah. he um, uh, was the first live flute player we were we were watching, and John, five years younger than me, I was nineteen at the, at the time watching the first incarnation of King Crimson in 1969 before they made that first extraordinary, stunning. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Classic record.
1: Yeah. And um, John fell in love with the flute and decided right then that, that he wanted to become that. And and um, he did. And he became, um, he, he took the classical route more yeah. than I did. So he was trained, whereas I'm all
3: instinct. Um, that amazes me, because when I was listening to the project today, um, The Night Siren, it, I was asking myself all through the project, and Dane was just touching on this, your time signatures, your your voicings, um, the arrangements, just the, the build, yeah. the, the arrangements from, from beginning to end are always stunning. Um, how much of that orchestral imaginings are you, and are, are you working with an arranger, or is that just largely
1: you? In your own studio, okay. Um, uh, well, well, to take you back a bit, um, the first album I I bought when, when I was twelve years old uh, was Ravel's valero I I loved that, and um, I used to imagine myself conducting it um, as a kid, as, as a twelve year old. And I, I used to do a lot of gymnastics at school, and so I used to run around the room trying to do somersaults and God knows what and handsprings and stuff listening to this stuff. So it was all one, all the, the energy um of that. And I, I never had any formal training because um music to me was it was a symbol of freedom. So um uh we seemed to be so harshly judged at school for the things that we couldn't accomplish I thought that I've got to keep music separate from that. And um uh so the real work used to start after school with me. I, I, I would go home <laughs> and and practice and, and I'm, I'm still practicing like like crazy now but uh I, who've who've been through the ringer of having had the lessons as i suspect you have yourself dame yes sir yeah I, I i suspect that most drummers i have worked with um usually say my, my drum teacher was so and so my influence was this guy i mean i, I was watching something I, I was watching some some buddy rich playing at ronnie scott's the other day and um i got to see him twice fabulous drummer did you i never got to see him live i should have done i was very slow off the mark because phil collins when i was working with him he said his big influence was 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 buddy rich and the same thing with bill bruford so you've got two two of these british drummers
2: yeah two of the greatest english drummers yeah
1: and 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 very different in style from from each other Certainly. But, but but i think um I was lucky enough to work with both of them and, um, but you have to admire Buddy Rich's energy if, if nothing else. And, and, um, I, I couldn't possibly tell you what, what he does because the lovely thing from my point of view is, is knowing nothing. So I can sit back and say, well, that's great. But I suspect Dane, you're probably thinking, what are you doing there? I, I've, I've got to, uh, I've got to figure that out. Yes. Well,
2: some of it, certainly like some of his sticking patterns and things, but, but Buddy also was possessed of a total genius of, you know, he could play a one handed role with either hand and with his bass drum too. And it's like, I got to see that. I saw him hold one stick up in the air and play a role with the other one. The fastest thing I've ever heard. And I'm just going, there's no way you can practice that. That's just sheer matter. It's almost, it was just, it's magic. It's. Right. It's impossible. Incredible.
3: I was just watching his videos the other day and I got sucked into that black hole. I must've watched about 15 videos of him on the tonight show. And yeah.
2: The drum battles with, uh, Ed Shaughnessy.
3: Ed Shaughnessy. Yeah. I think he had one with Louis Belson, didn't he as well? Yeah. Yep. No, but apart, just apart from that, to your point about the single handed role of so on. Anyways, your music man has, has such breadth to it. I, was, I couldn't believe the different styles. You, you go into the middle East on one song, then you're in, in the you know the Northumbria on another song it is just breathtaking how you take take you on a journey you know musically speaking i'm impressed with your your sense of arrangement i can't
1: i can't uh, express that enough um i think music can be a little bit like you know you're an artist yourself and my, my father was an artist unfortunately i didn't inherit his skill at drawing and and painting i mean he had that ever since he was very young ever since he was a kid you could see impressive things that that he'd done he'd drawn a picture of Montgomery um you know when he was 14 years old he was copying this out of the paper and you could see what what my dad was going to become from that but um uh in a way my dad did quite a lot of things a lot of different styles and landscapes were one of his specialities and I think that music can work in, in in very much the same way where you're doing musical landscapes and you think of Think of a region, and you mentioned Northumbria, the the Iulian the, um, the pipes that were used on something. Um, and, of course, it's common to all those Celtic regions. Um, and um, so I I love that. And, and, and in a way, if you want something that's really authentically wafting down from the highlands in Scotland, sit back and let let the pipes do it. Rock guitar is never going to do
0: that
1: Not, <laughs> yeah. although I think big country came pretty close with the use of eBo yeah guitar and um, that could be uh, uh,
3: I, I forget the song you had Doo was it skeleton yeah skeleton yes. yeah it's, yeah I mean it's what you choose to use in your arrangements is that's what I'm really inquiring about is just how how much of that comes are you hold up in your studio working with keyboards until you develop
1: your own um, uh, yeah, well, I, I, I work with, um, uh, usually write with, with, with two other people. Um, uh, in other words, I write as much as I can on my own. And then um, I welcome the input of two people, my wife, Jo, and also uh, Roger King, who is, a, is the keyboard player with uh, um, the band I, I have. Um, and um, he happens to be a great engineer, great keyboard player. And um, he's become uh, an extraordinary um, uh, orchestrator. So um, we sit down together. He has all the theory to my instinct. Mm -hmm. I usually credit him with the orchestral arrangements. Um, I usually come up with these days um, a top line and chords. Mm -hmm. We we map it out with with keyboards, with samples, and then uh, if we have time an opportunity. Um, we overlay that with the real thing or subtract it and have yeah, yeah. things. So, um, um, it's, you know, back in the old days, lovely back in the G- days of Genesis, we, we had, we had the time and opportunity as young guys to sit in a rehearsal room together and mm-hmm. things together. I think, I think that when you have a solo situation, and you don't really even know how the song is going to go. The marvelous thing about computers, though we all get frustrated with them blowing up and and, and all of that. And I realize it's, there's a certain coldness to it, but it's nice to be able to show someone a fully, a fully formed sketch and say,
3: yeah, "Yeah, this, this
1: is the song, the way I see it. And then, um, there can be the, 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 the input of, of other people over, over backgrounds that that work within themselves rather than, you know, what it's like in a rehearsal room, there's a guy working at a solo and everyone's got to keep powering around the same riff. And <laughs> that's right. And, and, that, can and be t- um, that can be tiring. That can be tiring. Of course, the other alternative is to have the score sheet. And, that, and yeah. we, we use that as well. Um, um, if you're working with orchestral stuff and, and, and real orchestral players, um, you can't really have the free-for-all. You have to have the agreement, otherwise known as the score sheet.
2: True. Yeah. It's got to be written out.
1: We go back to the old school ways of doing it, the old-fashioned. And
3: they can still get it wrong, <laughs> depending on the, on the the orchestra, yeah.
1: Yes, uh, I think orchestras, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I love working with them. Uh, um, it's, it's an ambitious thing, sticking together a, a, an orchestra and, 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 and a rock band. Um, mm-hmm. I've done it several times now, and um, as, as I'm sure you're aware, then, the, the, the way that a, an orchestra feels timing is rather different. To
2: it's way behind the rock. beat. I, I've played many or- orchestra sessions, and it's, it's way like behind the beat. big time. Unless
1: they're all in-ears, or, or you've got a conductor who's pushing them ahead of what they perceive to be the beat.
2: Right. Right. And even if there's a click track, even if there's a metronome, they're still like, if if it's here, they're going, uh, uh,
1: (laughs) it's like, I know it's, it's a funny thing. I gather in different regions. Um, I remember hearing something about a a conductor who was saying, you know, a lot of orchestras can be very much behind the beat of the baton. Um, and, uh, but in, in LA, this guy was saying, um, sometimes they're even ahead of the beat. So, um, um, I guess those, those orchestras that are used to doing film work, um, you know, maybe they jump right in there and that's, I think.
2: That's probably it. Yeah. Cause they have to work with a click track on that stuff. Yeah. So yes. they're used to that. Yeah. 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 Well, I've got to ask you, um, your uh, the last record you did was at the edge of light. Was that yeah. 2019? Literally. Man, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I, I encourage everybody that's listening here to check this record out. Um, uh, you hooked me on those first two songs. Um, well, thank you. Beasts in Our Time, the second cut, is a beautiful, haunting ballad. Your vocal performance is great. The video's really cool. I mean, yeah, I encourage all our listeners to check that out. And but, dude, the first cut, uh, Fallen Walls and Pedestals, yeah, it, it blew my mind. Oh, Okay, good. Uh, dude, you've always had fantastic chops and been able to play these odd meters somehow, miraculously without yeah. any training, but. I think you sound better than ever, man. It's so clean. It reminds me of a little bit of like Alan Holdsworth back in the Tony Williams days. It's that beautiful sounding to me that it's violinish, the tone, Yeah, man. It's astounding. It's just beautiful. I applaud you for, for keep you keep, seems like you keep progressing throughout your career. It's, it's fantastic.
1: Well, you know, we, we try and get better, don't we? And and, and time Mm -hmm. is always against us because, um, you know as long as the the magic fingers are 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 playing this is what we all hope for and um
3: i agree with dane though time has been good to your voice you have your voice even on the album that preceded that i guess the the album that preceded that was the night siren yeah yeah you're you're singing on behind the smoke and uh, there was another one that just came through beautifully um in another life the vocals were lovely
1: okay thank you
3: no absolutely man I'm, i'm I'm, I've been a fan since the 70s, and I, I confess to having kind of fallen off. Um, you, you hadn't fallen off the, the map I had, um, but reconnecting with you just now, I am you know I know how important Spectral Mornings was to, to my art studio at the time. It was on all the time. Now, this album that, that, that Dane just mentioned and your uh, Night Siren, they're going to be my backdrop for months to come for sure.
2: Yeah, beautiful stuff, man.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I was lucky to join this, you know, very young, young band back in the early 70s, Genesis, and um, uh, lucky to work with with Phil Collins, um, who instilled in me something that I didn't possess at that time, which was a sense of, of rhythm. And uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to think my timing got better, but just the appreciation of what might be a good feel on on something and so um he said something that was uh, a a very um correct in a way he said we're bound to influence each other and um i did and 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 you know when i work with the rhythm now i i think think to myself would phil have uh, would phil have approved of this and um there are so many ways of dividing up a rhythm isn't it you know that the you think sure of the great, the great drummers, uh, whether you're going at it at speed. And we've been lucky in Britain to have, you know, quite a few um, amazing players who some of them came out of jazz, Ginger Baker and, um, um, and you know, so, so many more who were rather extraordinary. John Bonham for taking the beat and just. Oh, without question. Going to half time with, with everything. And, and I, I find I get very, very drawn to the Bonham esque approach of half time, basically. Deep groove. Extraordinary stuff. You know, um, Mitch Mitch Mitchell, I think, also with, with Jimi Hendrix. Um, yeah. Fantastic player. Had some great chops. And um, very Elvin Jones. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. He was very Elvin Jones. Yeah, very interesting. I'm thinking of the the track "Hey Joe," where he's basically playing fast throughout the whole thing. Yeah, and I, I I doubt would you whether you'd get a modern drummer today doing that, basically soloing through the whole thing. I don't
2: think it. I don't think you could. I mean, yeah, I don't. I think that's kind of impossible to do now. I yes. mean, just the way the way our ears are trained to hear music, it's like you'd say, "Oh, gosh, what's that guy doing?" Yes, but if exactly. you took that, if you took that out of that song, that classic yeah. song that we all know, if yes. you went boom, crack, age, hey,
1: Joe, it wouldn't work. It, not doesn't, at all. it doesn't. It doesn't work, does it? It doesn't swing because the song is leaden in the first place, and so it's the, the drums that make it work. It's that—that's the rescue in, in in a way. So and Keith Moon did the same kind of thing with yes, the yes, I, I agree totally. Um, I love Moon's playing. There's a film called That'll Be the Day with david essex i've seen that ringo is in it yeah but the star of the show is just uh keith moon does something where i think his drums are being picked up maybe by the mic that's on the camera or something and it's all kind of distorted and ambient and i and i just love the sound it's and he's just going at it hammer and tongs and you think that's it the man explodes but um Sometimes I I prefer that to clarity. I I have to say, I I love the idea that the walls are shaking and it's buckling under the weight of this guy who's...
2: (laughs) There's something to be said for that, right? Come on, yeah.
1: In a way, I I think it's it's a terrible shame that so many drummers get all that fire kicked out of them by, by producers saying just keep it simple man just keep it simple that's I true and in the end it's like all these things you've learned and you think well they might just well we we'll have a drum machine do this right
3: did you ever see elvin i have to ask you dan did you no, see I,
1: I, I haven't a, a, another another genius that i've 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 missed out on yeah, i never got to see elvin
3: i sat six feet from him at a small jazz club in toronto I think he even sweated on me a couple of
2: times. Oh, I'm sure he, he sweated on everybody in the first 10 rows. He, <laughs> he
1: He's a sweaty man, but holy. I tell you who, who, who I, who I did see. And I suspect that most of this generation um, will not have seen him, but I saw the Paul Butterfield blues band. Um, and as a fellow harmonica player, uh, I saw them in 1966 when I was a uh, near 16. And um Playing to a handful of people in a very small club, nice. and those guys were just mind-bogglingly uh, wonderful. I think it was Sam, Sam Lay on drums. Yeah, man. Yep.
0: Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. he, he swings like crazy, right? You know. Yes, he does. Classic drummer. And Paul Butterfield on harmonica was just phenomenal. And Mike Bloomfield, who did lots of stuff with Dylan, sure, and was, was Elvin, Elvin, and Elvin Bishop. Elvin Bishop. Yeah, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elvin Bishop. And you know what? all three of those guys as soloists were just stunning that night. I I Mm -hmm. think maybe the fact that they were playing to the size of an audience where you would now nowadays just call it a rehearsal. So everyone's playing without fear and, um,
0: flattening me we, we've alluded to um you guys have a few times just the breadth of your catalog if you will and different variations and styles and that's the thing that sticks out to me and gosh the work ethic i mean it's just like yes you know you look you look at that discography and it's every year and sometimes you know a couple or three things in a year but i have to ask Um, and maybe it's because as I'm looking behind you and we're talking, uh, here and I see all those, like, looks like files. It's like, I'm having this image of Steve waking up in the middle of the night and being like, there's a style I haven't done yet. I'm going to write it in my book, but how is there styles that you haven't yet, you know, explored that you're like, I really want to go there someday or, you know? Um, it's a funny thing. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a strange industry. You never really
1: qualify in it. Do you? Um, I should know a lot more about jazz and i and, uh, and i don't but sometimes you stray into jazz um without even trying and, and i've 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 worked with jazzers. um it is it is a different language um i think that you start out with one idea in music and then with any luck you lose all your prejudice against all the things that you were not interested in when you were a kid and you come to appreciate the beauty of every instrument which has its place. Uh, there's no such thing as a useless instrument, it seems to me.
0: I'd, um, I'd like you to record that, what you just said a little bit ago, for my kids, so I can play that for them, <laughs> if you don't mind. Get even when we're done here, just a separate track. <laughs> and I can play yeah, um, it. Um, you know, um, well,
1: you see, you, you want to fly the flag for, for whatever is in your heart when you're first on fire. With it, and of course, uh, there aren't too many kids who're going to get fired up about the humble triangle. But <laughs> the triangle has its place, and um, it's in there. And, and uh, you might listen to some Tchaikovsky, and and you realise the timpani is doing a roll, and on top, the triangle is doing the same thing for extra brightness. You know, in a, in a particularly um, exuberant moment of. It's a feeling of, of a triumph. And so it's from, from bottom to top. Yeah. In the, in the right. world. Um, uh, and that's an extraordinary.
3: Well, your music certainly doesn't lack that dynamic or that range. I, again, I, I can't say enough about the arrangements. are un- unbelievably beautiful.
1: Well, well thank you.
3: I, I've heard a lot of people speak about the, their hit songs that came to them between breakfast and lunch. And yeah. And, and it just seemed to you know, just flow through them and, and arrive unexpectedly. But then I've also heard the same composer say it took three months to find the final version of the song. Do you find any of your stuff comes to you extraordinarily quickly?
1: And- um, I don't think I've had quite the, the McCartney moment with yesterday, you know, <laughs> where he dreams the the song and um, um, wakes up the next day and says, uh, I think someone else wrote this. Um, plays it to a number of people and they all say no can't figure out the composer but uh, but that is 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 an ex- uh, an extraordinary gift when it happens and sometimes i have dreamt melodies have you yeah uh, uh, and uh, it doesn't happen very often but when it does uh, you, you you sit back and go well no one's done that but what a beautiful song isn't that isn't that wonderful or or be- beautiful moment, um, aren't
3: you? Lucky you retained it because sometimes, right? We do that. We wake up and go,
1: "Shit, what was that?" And you can't. Yes, you can't quit. <laughs> I, I've I've had that too. And and for the first few times it happened, I wasn't able to remember exactly what it was. Much to my frustration. And then I started to be able to remember what it was, and I think I was uh, very keen to write it down immediately, just in case. Um, uh, I couldn't rem- I, I don't trust in memory. Mm. And memory is extremely fallible. Now, I, I used to write in the early days with Genesis. Um, I would just remember a melody. In fact, I used to think this is a, a way of, of um, assessing whether it's good or not, whether mm. I remember it. Yeah. Um, but no, not 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 now. I think not with
2: voice memo on our phones. That's saved me many times. Just put it on there That's real right. quick and
3: <laughs> I think it's a product too of the more you do what you do. That that lovely album by Paul McCartney was so self effacingly titled Memory Almost Full. If you are as prolific as Paul or you are, and you've been doing this for so long, how on earth could you possibly expect? I, I even marvel at at singers on stage remembering lyrics when they do a three hour show. I mean, yeah.
2: Not many do. Most of them have a teleprompter these days.
1: Well, I think uh, uh, somebody told me that um, uh, if you can remember the first the first line of each verse, yep. you had a very good chance of, of getting through. So that is a trick I have employed.
2: Well, I have too. Okay. Just write down. I've had a big piece of paper with
1: just the first line or, you know. Yep. That's it. So we, we, we work to cues, whether they're visual or, or uh or imagined. And do you, do you sing yourself, Dane? Do, you, do you do that? Yeah, when I'm when I'm working up a new song, I mean, I, I've got
2: probably thirty of mine that I can still remember everything. But if it's a newer song, and I maybe rewrote it a couple times, and it's gone through different changes, that makes it even harder to remember. So yeah, writing that first line down really gonna will spark you. So I've done that yes. many times. Write it really big, so I can keep it on the floor, so I can see it. You know. Sure.
1: Yeah, yeah. And what about you, Hugh?
3: Well, it's the same thing. I have remembered really complex piano pieces that I've written. You know, as far back as nineteen seventy-five, and I still retain those. Surprisingly, I remember all the details. And and yet, I could come up with a really simple song one day, and a week later go, "Shit, what was that?" And and it's. I mean, I'm just talking like a real simple, like a Neil Young piano part, where you just kind of or a McCartney piano part where you just put down something pretty. And I, I at least now with Pro Tools, put things down. I make a point. It's the same with lyrics. I like certain, I, I admire lyricists so much that I freeze when it comes time to write lyrics because I've got Joni Mitchell standing behind me and and Peter Gabriel over here and, and Donald Donald Fagan right up here behind me. <laughs> I, yep. I can't get out of my own way. How, how do you do it? How do you find your your muse when it comes to words
1: um now that's a that's an interesting thing i in in recent years i've been writing more and more with my wife um, Ah. joe but i don't think there's any formula if if i really had a formula i could say you know sometimes music comes first sometimes it's a lyric Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes it's a rhythm uh Uh you could be led to a song by by nefarious means we all of us need a portal at what point does something stop Becoming a rehearsal, and and it solidifies into um, something worth framing right. in memory. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, I, d- I don't think you can teach anyone how to write a song. I think you can you can teach um, a technique. You can you can demonstrate mm-hmm. that. But what is it? The quantum leap that takes take it takes it out of the hands of the of the of the virtuoso who may be um terrified at the idea of coming up with anything themselves and make the concert lead to composer how 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 does that work take away the fear i think is the
3: main yeah thing. yeah yeah painters dread the white canvas so there might be something similar there you know just how do i dare stain that pristine white surface you know you got to you got to start making noise to at least respond to what ah. yeah Oh, that's
2: it. Yes. And you can't, I'm going to, I'm going to mess this up before you start. You have to be able to hop right into it or you're, it's not going to happen. You know, it's like
3: jamming every once in a while. You'll, you'll think you're starting a jam off with something cool until the whole band looks at you and says, don't call us. We'll call you. You know, it's just like.
0: L- listening to you guys talk and and uh, it's fascinating and and it's making me think. And the question that I have for you, Steve, yeah. is dialing back. And you've alluded to it a little bit with some bits and pieces here, but dialing back to those early '70s with with Genesis and making all those great records during those years. You know, when you look at the members of the band during that time with all of you guys, it's just mind-blowing when you see it now and it makes me think can you walk us through that process during those years like what was the dynamic create and the creativity like and just the overall experience because the music's incredible and timeless and so influential but can you kind of take us back to that time and how you guys you know, what the process was the creativity process all the all that stuff well um genesis when i, I first joined them uh,
1: peter gabriel said to me um we think of ourselves as as a team of songwriters and um, they wanted someone who could write as well as play. Um, My writing was really all in, it was all aspirational, um, even though I'd advertised myself as a writer. It's a bit like saying, you know, I'm a a top chef and I hadn't even yet cooked a meal, but I just knew (laughs) what I wanted to do. So I really bluffed my way as as regards that, and I very quickly discovered that um, many of the guys were very accomplished songwriters in their own right. So initially, I just contributed um, uh, guitar parts mm-hmm. to things. I started to bring in tunes, and we um, we kicked them around like a game of football. We just tried, um, you know, um, kicking things about, uh, passing the the ball from one to the other or like like a relay race where there's a baton and um one guy runs with it for a while another guy picks up and um and 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 carries on forward well
0: on that on that note on the live side of of your career can you take us back to what was the first like some of the first concerts you went to um maybe growing up as a fan um oh well i was very lucky
1: to see um Quite a lot of gigs by John Mayle. Mm. John Mayle had the young Peter Green playing uh, with him just after Eric Clapton had left the band. Um, And so I saw several of those gigs. Um, I was very interested in blues stuff, where all of the sonic developments that were happening in the electric guitar were around around the world of blues. Um, So um, that was all seminal stuff. Um, I saw Cream. In the very early days, awesome in, in their first year of of, of incarnation, and um, they made a powerful noise for for a three piece, uh, no passengers,
0: <laughs>
1: in that band. Um, so mainly mainly blues shows. Um, um, at the same time, I was listening to classical music, um, and I thought that these two things are not going to come together: blues and baroque. And then I saw King Crimson in nineteen sixty nine, which I think was the bi- the big one oh. in a way. Um, uh, with the blueprint for so much of what was to follow. No question. It, no doubt. A band that was yeah. mixing jazz with classical music or with pop music and rock and, and, and humor and, um, the legacy of the Beatles were informing these, uh, virtuosic young guys. Um, and, um, I, I got to befriend most of them and, um, you know, spend time and, um, uh, they were doing exactly what I wanted to be able to do in future. In other words, to mix it all up where uh, the challenge is almost to come up with a new genre, every song, if you could do that, wouldn't that just be wonderful? So um, these collisions and hybrids and whatever you call them. That's why I said when I, when I listened to the, the,
3: the night siren, I mean, you got you got Dwayne Eddie on one song, as far as I'm concerned. In, in uh, yes. fifty miles, you know, and yes, and and you've got you know you've got like the Duke. All the different styles are I, I can't say it enough, are extraordinarily diverse. That's the key, and your your palate is massive.
2: I've got a specific question, uh, Steve, if I may. Looking back on the Genesis stuff, I thought after Peter left. Uh, Was the first record after that was Trick of the Tail, was it not?
1: Uh, Yes, uh, Trick of the Tail, first one as a four piece without without Peter Gabriel. Yeah.
2: Well, this the first tune on there, Dance on a Volcano, is one of the got to be one of the most difficult prog things that if if you had to learn that for a band. That might take you a week. I was just, I mean, there's it so, it's like that, that notey stuff at the end that's real kind of furious and then seven. And then I'm not even sure what you guys go into after that. I quit counting. I thought, well, I'm not going to record this song. So I'm not going to try to. I don't have it. I don't have a couple of days to figure out what you tried to do. But right. my question is, how long did it take you guys to get that song recorded? What was the process on that? I mean, do you, do you have recollection of that? I just find that that song's amazing.
1: As far as I remember, I just done a solo album, and then I started working with the band uh, with that straight afterwards. So it was like trying to give birth twice. So it was <laughs> a little bit tricky for me at that time. Um, and um, we were writing in seven eight. It was a favourite. It was a favourite um, time signature for us. Um, it's a rhythm much beloved of not just early Genesis, but also. Um, many years later I got to work with Chris Squire who said he really loved seven as a, as a uh, writing tool in a way Um, that I don't think it took us that long because there are a lot of repeats. It's the end section where it goes fast and furious, which was my main input into the, into the, um, into the tune. Uh, And I still play that quite a lot with my band these days. Awesome. I was talking to, um, Jason Bonham, um, John Bonham's son, who was saying that that song was a, a big influence for him. It's, it's strange because it's slow and heavy, but it's in seven. It's got the truncated thing. Phil used to say it's as if someone's typing and, and going, by the time you get to seven, uh, with the thing. And so it keeps truncating the end of the bar. So it's it's like this kind of catapult that's informing the thing. Um, the uh, the early opening stuff is really uh, Mike Rutherford writing with the twelve string and with bass pedals, He newly acquired the Taurus bass pedals.
2: Okay, well, fabulous cut, man! It, you guys made it. You, you yeah, you made like the most difficult song in the world sound like it was you just tossed it off like you were playing, you know, an easy rock tune. I mean, it's
1: well. Uh, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think the uh, the last bit, which I was largely responsible for, um, is actually the most difficult thing to play because you've got to be on on your metal with that. It's, no it's, question, uh, Gosh. It's it's so damn fast, and I even played it with an orchestra a couple of years back, live. I, I've done it once or twice with orchestras, different orchestras, and um, could they hang with you? Yeah, strangely enough, I think they were all terrified. First of all, I uh, bet they were. <laughs> Because um, they looked at this stuff, and there's so many notes on the page, and and if only some of them get anywhere near it, you're winning. Right. Um, but I, but I think that you know that might also be the case as as um, as Roger King. You know, my cohort says you know with the Stravinsky stuff. Um, he said, what you've got to realise is that orchestras they're not going to be able to get this right there might be orchestral players who could be listening to this and bristling at that challenge, but I'm just telling you what I've heard that, um, try and get it as close as you can. So it's aspirational play. Well, I think. Perfection is the enemy of, of good. So <laughs> there's something to be said for that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we ever, ever reach perfection. You just try and... Yeah, that's what keeps us going, right? Yeah, I think so. And and uh, um, I'm lucky enough to grow up listening to the Beatles. I'm um, thinking that um, it, it, the plague in the main is is, is 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 not technically difficult, but... It's beautifully imperfect. I, I, I agree.
0: Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your forthcoming acoustic uh, album sure that you're thing. working on now?
1: Um, I've just done an album... Um, recorded at home called under a mediterranean sky and it's basically acoustic orchestral um there are players on it but um they were working in the main remotely uh, giving their performances and sending them in um it's really um i, I used this word landscaping earlier um the idea of doing something that's typically Spanish, typically French, um, to take in Greece, so many areas around the Mediterranean, the known world for the ancients, really. Um, and at times to be, able, to be able to change the style of music. So you might realize that you're in Spain with the track called Andalusian Heart, mm-hmm. for instance, which is really, you know, the area of Andalusia has the Alhambra Palace it also has the Sacramento, where the gypsies live and play and dance in the ca- in the caves. Um, and the Moors are part of that too, right? Exactly, the Moorish influence yeah. all of that. So, all things Andalusian um, that conjure um, the gypsy magic of uh, of Spain. I- I've tried to capture some of that in a- in a kind of Rodrigo like style. Conchido de um to do a kind of mini version of that. Of course. That piece originally, Aaron was, was made popular by Miles Davis, who, who rediscovered it. I believe it was written in the 1920s, mm. when Miles mm. Davis recorded it, I think in the 1950s or early 60s. Sketches um, of Spain. Sketches <laughs> of Spain. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Great, um, great record. He was the one who, who, who popularized this piece of music that might have been passed over. So there you are, you know, an American jazz man um, uh, giving it his, his take. On something and unearthing something which has been hailed as, as a as a as a
3: masterpiece no question M- uh, my father was a big fan of Manitas de Plata um yeah
1: where did you draw from for that well you know I think that every guitarist I've ever watched has become my teacher if they've been doing something that was interesting like for instance when I was in Quebec one day I saw a guy playing in the in the open air, a busker, doing this move, and I thought, ah, that's how that one's done, you know. That's interesting. Arpeggiating with with all the fingers to get a chord and then um, on uh, on the return from top to bottom, he was just using one finger to bring it right back, the the forefinger. Uh, yeah. And um, I, ah, that's how you get that cyclic thing, you know the the equivalent of cyclic breathing that that, that woodwind and brassmen uh, can do. Roland Kirk, uh, yeah. Roland Kirk, yeah. yeah. Rob Townsend, the guy I work with uh, who plays uh, sax and, and and flute, showed me how that was possible on on sax, and he really did it. And wow, his throat's filling up and his mouth's doing one thing, and it's um that's incredible. It's just. Incredible to watch that. That's actually he's keeping up the pressure with the cheeks, but he's inhaling. Wow!
3: I looked at his credits on your project, and he's he's the one that plays Duduk too. I would have guessed you'd brought some someone in from
1: the Middle East, but well, no. Funny enough, he he learned Duduk, um, but on the on the on the current album, they they want the um, under Mediterranean sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a guy from Armenia. It's it's an Armenian instrument, and there was an Armenian guy who got in touch with me when I was due to play Paris. We were due to hook up. It didn't quite work out, but we stayed in touch. And I heard him playing, and I thought, "This sounds great." So he's on—he's on one of the tracks. I said it to him, and was, he said it back. He's now back in Armenia there's, on the same track. There's a guy playing the tar, which I'd recorded a couple of years ago when I was in in uh, Hungary in Budapest, and they're both playing on the same track called. Um, Oh, the dervish and the djinn, the whirling dancer. Mm-hmm. And those two regions are at war with each other right now. The Nagorno karabakh region has been great fighting there. A lot of people killed. And the Armenians are moving out of a territory which um, has now been returned to Azerbaijan. Um, but, you know, politics seems to divide. And music um, seems to be able to create situations where people come together so that's a, that's that could be a wonderful
3: uh, i got that when i watched your video for behind the smoke uh, I, I got a, a good feeling about that same thing i mean that that had beauty and anguish and melancholy
2: and thank you i've got one last thing to say quickly steve as i think sure, it's, it's a wonderful thing that you that on your web page that you're selling merchandise for the guys that are in your crew that it can't work right now that's fantastic that's man That's right. god bless uh, and, you and,
1: and, and i i, I would in, encourage people who have bands you know to do that i think it's a very worthwhile thing so yeah man um, yeah we're we're, we're we're selling masks um for the pandemic. which are very cool by the way they're cool yeah well thank you and there's been t-shirts and there's been handwritten lyrics which every one of them i did individually and there's other ideas coming out but i think that's a really a great idea it's um, nice of you to do for them very nice yeah yeah no it's it's such a pleasure to be able to do that so and, and it's been wonderful talking to you guys and i have to go and
0: do uh, something else right now so well thank you so much for joining us today steve okay. we appreciate it the thank best wishes
1: all the best thank you thanks steve thank you all the best guys thank you so much thank you cheers